All right. It's Tuesday night. Now, I've been getting a lot of messages asking when my battle is tonight at the Fonda Theater. But if I'm in my home right now doing this podcast, I think you could surmise the brilliant minds of Comedy Central thought that it wouldn't be a good idea to have the most popular roaster on season three. Yeah, let's get a few people who've never done it before battling each other. That's good television. But you know what? When a door shuts in your face, another door opens, and I get to spend the next hour with one of my favorite comics on earth. And we don't really know each other, but I like this guy because he keeps it real. And he's got a new book out, and I'm pleased as punch to actually get to know him for an hour. Put your hands together, inappropriate listeners, Mr. Guy Bronham. Good to be here. Well, you're one of the few comics who intimidate me. Really? Well, cause Why? To, and I'm being, I'm not being up your ass. I just, uh, you're larger than life, uh, not just in physical uh, size, but uh, you have a tremendous confidence it's always weird when those people who like it's always men who sort of like attribute a lot of meaning to like oh you're very large and the thing is is like i've just never like i never think about that like i mean i i I only think about it i think in the sense that like it just means i don't have to worry about the things that like women do or like some gay guys that like you know somebody's probably not going to like try to like shove me down on the street or something like that. But um, I don't know. <laughs> well, well, your comics, uh, your com, your comics, one of my uh, shack, your <laughs> comedy is very, uh, you exude confidence. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Like, uh, you know, I got to see a little bit of it when you would like judge roast battle. Yeah. And you were, uh, I wouldn't say you were mean, but you were just direct. Yes. Where uh, a lot of people who judge kind of skirt around, you know, honesty. Well, it's the thing I really love about like roast and roastiness is like the idea of having spaces where you are just being direct and everybody knows what the rules are and, you know, uh, playing that game. I always really appreciate people like you and Chris Fairbanks who like, I think can exude this uncertainty that like lulls an audience into being like oh where's this going and then it you take it to the perfect place um and it really sort of when i'm when i'm watching i never know what's going to happen you know nor do i Uh, (laughs) i'm very scared when i'm up there uh no i always like i always feel very well taken care of uh during while watching you do do comedy well i just um i'm i've never not the few times i've not been scared i've bombed uh-huh. I think it, because uh, I don't drink or do drugs. Uh-huh. So I think the nervousness is my uh, is my drug. I I like it. Yeah, just feeling on, like, it's the reason I like crowd work, um, is just sort of going into an uncertain place. Um, and then, you know, if it doesn't all fall apart in your hands, you get to feel like a god. Right. Now, do you, you know, one thing that's always bothered me about uh, gay comics is how they're brought up as he's a gay comic or she's a gay comic. Like you're just a comic. Does that bother you still? Or not necessarily. I mean, I don't think I get brought up as a gay comic that frequently. Um, but I also think if somebody's doing it, 
you know, I know that women are very tired of being brought up with a reference to their gender and sort of alienating them from things. And I think it is a little annoying to say like, oh, he's a flavor of comic, not a regular comic. But I also think like doing the work of just informing the audience what they're in for. Like when I started stand up comedy, I really did have to like have a joke at the beginning of my set that sort of like laid out the terms of things for people because they would be like confused or uncertain about it. Where now it's, you know, we're all grown ups and I'm able to just sort of like go into material without having to sort of quite so much explain who I am or where I'm coming from. What got you into stand up? Um, I liked having opinions and being loud about them. Um, well, actually, in my book, My Life is a Goddess, available July 31st, wherever books are sold, um, pre-order today. No, in my in my book, I talk about the way that, like, uh, I, I, we, like, got our first VCR right as the comedy boom was happening, right. and my parents brought home a lot of, like, Carlin and, um, you know, our, like, Eddie Murphy Delirious coming into the house was, like, such a big deal, and we were so excited for it. Um and that like started me and, and then there was all of this stuff on television and I really just started falling in love with these characters and the, uh, these people's identities and stuff. And I think as time went on, there were lots of things that were really interesting to me, but the idea of just, I want to like doing something creative, but also where you don't have to believe in yourself that long, right. like writing a joke, isn't that hard where like people who were able to like be in a room and just like write a novel or write a screenplay. Uh, and then send it out and be able to be like, oh, this is good. I kind of don't understand that. Like it really did take me, you know, working on shorter stuff and then showing it to people and, you know, performing it and learning from people and, and that kind of thing. I just think I, you know, once I tried it, I knew that I would never love anything else as much, you know? It's addicting. Yeah. Um. Now, what is your writing process? Like, do you like see something on the street or, or how does it evolve? Like when you first started? Honestly, Earl, I don't uh, remember what it was like when I wrote a, or wrote a new joke. Um, I am in a bad place right now. Usually, I mean, like this is not a good habit, but I have a nasty habit of watching other standups and having somebody express sort of like a take or an opinion and being like, well, I disagree with that. And then uh, turning that into a bit. Like I have a bit on my last album that is just like Josh Adam Myers was trying out a bit about how when uh, men orgasm, it's disgusting. And when women orgasm, it's beautiful. And I was just like, no, I disagree with that entirely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I just like, encounter something and I have a reaction to it and that reaction turns into a take or sometimes for me it really is like having my brain in like this very specific kind of relaxed place like a long drive or something right. like that where my brain will just sort of like like relax into an issue and it'll just sort of start coming together as jokes and opinions and takes and things now I'm seven years older than you uh-huh so we more or less grew up in the same era of of comedy like yes uh like when you were a gay celebrity back in the 70s 80s you kind of had to keep it quiet uh-huh like uh, paul len yeah uh, who was like one of my favorites mm -hmm. jim j bullock uh now it's like who cares but is it though i mean i would say you probably know more closeted gay male comedians than you know out gay comedians <laughs> or definitely or i mean i mean now we're maybe to a point where like things are like 
50 50 on that front or whatever. But I do think what's confusing for a lot of people is that like gay men and gay women in stand up have had very different paths because like there was just the crazy number of women who like were, you know, performing in the late 80s, and early 90s who ended up coming out of the closet. Ellen, Wanda, Sue Murphy, like, um, you know, it's a sh- it's a shit ton of ladies like established careers for themselves. Carol Leifer. I think Carol Leifer is gay. Um, but a, an astounding number of people, women established careers for themselves and then came out. And then that didn't really happen for, for gay guys. So it only really has been sort of like my generation of gay comics, like me and Adomian and Gabe Liebman. And then sort of the people who came after that, who really sort of were out and had, decent careers. I mean, there were guys who were older than us, um, who like, and yeah, I barely, I consider Ant to be gay, but barely a comedian. Um, this is why I like your honesty. I'd be too much of a pussy to say that. What am I preserving my relationship with Ant for? Um, but like, but there are great people like who you probably don't know, like Scott Capro from San Francisco is like famous in England. Or there was this guy, Bob Smith, who was the first out gay man, on the tonight show. And I think it was like decades after him before they had another out gay comic on the tonight show. But it was just a thing of like people hit a ceiling of what they could do. And then just sort of went off and found, you know, like Scott Capurro was like, I can make a decent career being famous in England. Why the fuck would I fuck around with Los Angeles? You know? Uh, and that's a little bit sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't know if naive is the right word, but like, I just had no clue when I was, watching paul lynn and uh you know taylor negron yeah uh i was just like oh this guy's uh, charles nelson riley right which looking back now i go wow how could i not see charles nelson riley's being gay yeah you know the ascots and the sailor's hats it was wonderful it was wonderful taylor negron was like such a, a great performer and also somebody who did a really good job of like integrating his actual lived life into his material as like the world grew up and got better. It was sort of cool in like the nineties in the mid nineties, there came this point where people were sort of like asking, Oh, Hey, should we treat people like gay? Like, should we treat gay people like they're humans? And you got some interesting, like, uh, Marga Gomez, uh, a really great lesbian comic got like a moment. Like I remember her being on comic relief and me just being like, she's so funny. She's so smart. She's so beautiful. Like, can, you know, is this even possible? Um, but again, just sort of like hit the ceiling of what she could do. And now she like lives in San Francisco and does a lot of theater. Right now. Like what, what is the big goal for you? Like, cause I see that with other comics too. Like he's not gay, but Tim Thomerson was like a legendary, uh, comic in the seventies and eighties. Now he just lives in La Jolla, doesn't even do it. Like, that's sad to me. I don't think there will ever be a time in my life when I don't do stand-up. I certainly hope that it's true. I mean, though I do think, too, like, my my early years at, like, the punchline in San Francisco, there was, like, this older guy who would show up and, like, uh, do a bunch of jokes about baseball. And I was a little bit like, I hope I never turn into that person. Not that I would ever tell jokes about baseball. But, like, I hope... I will like, I will always do stand up just because it's so wonderful and I have opinions to get out and I'm not just doing this 
as the course to something that will make me money. There are some people we know who, who sort of like use stand up to establish a place for themselves in entertainment as a writer or a performer. And then they were like, okay, that's enough for me. And I'm always going to have things I want to do and say, and, and I'm always going to be chasing that feeling, you know? Right. Um, and I'm bad. At, I've always been bad at articulating what the thing I want is. Um, I came here directly from therapy. So now it just really feels like a continuation of the same I mean, process. I'm not bumming you out. Anyway. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's wonderful. It's fine. I mean, the thing is, is I, I think there are totally ways where it's been bad for me not having a like, oh, this is what I want. But two things. First of all, there, <laughs> there aren't people like me in this business or, or haven't been for a very long time. So it's not like I look at someone and say like, ah, that's where I'm going. I'm like him or her. Um, and I think the fact that like I have done a variety of things is cool. It means that I've gotten like, you know, I've gotten to be like a producer on sitcoms, but I also got to host my own talk show, you know, like I got to write for cool ladies. Like I've gotten to, you know, I got to be in a rom-com, like I've gotten to do lots of cool things. And I wrote a book. My life is a goddess available July 31st, wherever books are sold. Um, buy it, please <laughs> buy it. Like I get no money out of the sales of this book, but I try and help my friends. That's not remotely true, Earl. We've both read the contract, okay? <laughs> right, shut up, guys. Uh, <laughs> but like, I try and do what Rogan does. Like, Rogan has his friends on. Yes. And he helps us. Now, I'm not saying this is like being on Rogan. It's yes. not. But please buy Guy's book. It's just, there's very few good people in this business. <laughs> Oh, uh, I was going to be, I was going to make a joke about what I would be saying if I were on Joe Rogan's podcast, but then I got scared of saying any of the things I might speculate. I also love Joe Rogan so much. I like, I think he is astoundingly hilarious and I have loved him for years. And it's weird for me that he is such, uh, he is now so associated with the alt-right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, but what I love about his podcast is, you know, you would think someone who comes from the UFC world would just have UFC fighters and, uh, I don't know, pro hockey players and just athletes. He has some pretty far out there guests, like flat earth people. And He's a curious, funny person who's on steroids, and that's really all I'm looking for in a human being. Well, I mean, I, I can't uh, confirm or deny that. Uh, he's nice to me. And I, I can appreciate that. Uh, but uh, I hopefully being on this podcast guy uh, helps you in some form. Let's hope so. Thank um, you for having me. Oh, please. Now, when you what do you go to therapy? I'm not saying your specific problem, but uh, like I went to therapy to help me get over the bullshit of this business. Uh -huh. Do you go for more personal stuff or just overall? I think my current therapist has used the designation um, general anxiety disorder uh, for insurance purposes, though previous ones have used um, uh, depression. It's pretty much it. It's just like depression and having a place more than anything, going to a place where I can say the things that I need to say and force me to sort of like crystallize how I'm feeling into words like that is the baseline of what I want therapy to be. And then if he has anything insightful or compelling to say, that's gravy, you know, like that's really nice. And I do have a really great, smart, interesting therapist. It's also very hot, which is uncomfortable. Uh, well, well, do you have a type? I do have a type. What's interesting is he's hot, but not my type. Um, 
like he is like sort of like thinnish, lightly muscled, tall, like silvery, like graying, dark hair kind of gay guy. And I'm like, oh, wow, he he's very hot to other gay guys. And it must be very fun for him to shop for sweaters. Um, but um, earlier when I said of Rogan, uh, like uh, uh, funny, curious and on steroids, uh, that is more my type. Right. Uh, well, you know, I, I I'm not sure, uh, you know, we don't know who can say. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, yes, I, I've uh, I don't know Joe that well, but he's always uh, I like that. He's he sticks up for the little comics. Yes. And that's my dog uh, throwing up a hairball right now. This is uh, this is not the Rogan studio. This is all kinds of things going on. I'm sorry that I've made it so much about Joe. I'm no, I love like I just like how he sticks up for com- he's like, you know, usually when you say someone's a comics comic, that's the kiss of death. Uh-huh. At least, you know, I get called the comics comic. Yeah. And it's, it's oh, that means you'll probably never make it. That is not my cap. The it, it looks like the dog just vomited a water bottle cap. And I want to make clear that it was not my water bottle cap, that it's somebody else's fault. Uh, my dog just did throw up a water bottle cap, but uh, we'll keep it going because yes. this is about guys book. My Life as a Goddess. Available July 31st, wherever books are sold. I mean, the thing about a comics comic is that your fear is that the only people laughing are in the back of the room. And I feel like when I came to Los Angeles, which was like 2005, there were a lot of people who were like in a very self-congratulatory way, only playing to the back of the room and doing, being proud of themselves for doing jokes that the audience didn't enjoy. And it made me want to kill those people. And they were what was cool and what like was much beloved. And I had so much rage about that. Well, I, you know, I used to do that, to be honest with you. Like, I used to play to the back of the room because they're like, oh, my, I, I was just more comfortable because uh, in my early days, I, I would really only play rooms that were in front of comics. Did you start here? I started in L.A. So. Um, I maintain that starting comedy in LA is a bit like being molested as a child. You are just exposed to ideas and energies that you are not ready for. And like the, like you, when you're six months into stand up, you shouldn't be thinking about why don't I have a manager? Somebody else has a manager. And that's completely what happens here. We're like in a little place like San Francisco where I started or like Boston or wherever you just get to like, want to be good at stand up really bad for a long time. And also you have real audience. Like in San Francisco, there were like real Americans who would sit down in front of us. We're here. You really have to do your first two years in front of aspiring comics. And I think there are ways that that's interesting and good because Indianapolis's best comic f- is going to be at your open mic. Like your open right. mic is going to be full of really sophisticated, good comics who moved here so that they can fail in a warmer climate. Um, but you know, I, I, the advantage of having like real audience to react to is, is important. This dog. Is buddy okay? Oh, yeah. So cute. She's never done this before. So, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, my first couple years, I don't think I played in front of 100 people combined, normal people. Uh, It was just bitter comics and, uh, you know, potluck at the comedy store, which was like the bar in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, So, can I I, express one of my semi like controversial opinions? Oh, please. I hope so. So, like, it's been a thing where we've been talking a lot recently about 
comics getting paid to do stand up. And I remember one time I had a friend and she, she was a host of a TV show and she had a premium blend back when you had premium blends and we were in San Francisco and I was like, what's the most you've made for comedy? And she's like, all I've ever made for comedy was my after scale for premium blend. Like we're like in San Francisco, I would be doing things for like, you know, a couple of hundred bucks, like a right. couple of times uh, a month, like more than a couple of times a month. Uh, and like when people, in New York and LA complain about not getting paid for random sets. Actually in New York, they do frequently. My attitude a little bit is like, you're not getting up in LA for $20 or $40. You're getting up in LA for the fact that there is somebody in that room who is a decision maker. Like the shittiest show you do is like, you're doing stand up so that you can get commercial work. You're doing stand up so that you can get writing work. Like, I, I kind of don't under, like, I really love and respect venues who care and pay attention to the performers in that way. But part of me is just this jaded old man who's like, no, this is LA. Like, if you want to make some money for doing stand up, go to where there aren't a lot of stand ups. Yeah. But here there are a shit ton of people and you're using this to try to distinguish yourself from the rest of the crowd. I mean, do uh, when I see new comics come out here and they, I don't know, I guess I throw off a, a fatherly vibe that they can get good advice from. They're like, can you recommend good rooms that I could make a few bucks in? I'm like, uh, not really. Uh, I mean, you know, the, if you're going to be in at the store, the factory, the improv, you pretty much have to have TV credits. Yeah. Uh, Ice house as well. Um, you know, I think, I mean, you'd have to go down like to Orange County and San Diego and beyond to. You know. Which is one of the wonderful things about this place. Like there is something so lovely about going to San Diego or even just into the valley and like getting a nice dose of like the very different comedy world that is there. I mean, I like going to New York because it's uh you can do six spots in a night and get paid for most of them. Yes. Um, again, I hate New Yorkers moving to LA and being like, I only get one set a night. And it's like, well, your set will matter here. Um, though it does like New York creates these people who like are amazing headliners who aren't famous yet. Right. Um, and I love that. And I, I had to live there for jobs twice and both times I just became a much better stand-up comedian because the audiences are engaged and sort of like participatory in a way that audiences aren't here. And I think that I find the comics in New York are a little more serious about the craft. I might be wrong in that, but like, you know, sometimes in LA it could just be, let's make my comedy friends in the back laugh. And, yeah. Uh, and I fell victim to that, you know, uh, but in New York, it seems like, all right, if you're going to do a hack joke, we're going to call you out on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think it's because there are real audiences there. There are good audiences. And like, they're going to tell you if you're doing a bad job. And there are like interesting audiences. Like, um, there, there were, sh there are these Brooklyn shows now that are like are full of like hipster gay boys that are just like, and women and, and lots of other things, but it is sort of, you don't see that many gay guys at stand-up shows. And like, uh, these Brooklyn rooms are like really interesting and challenging for me to sort of like get to tell a different level of joke to people who will be able to get it. You know, right. do you, uh, 
like playing gay rooms or do you like you just want to what what's your favorite type of crowd to perform in front of um i like i mean like what's the best kind of dick they're all wonderful in their way you know um i it is wonderful to like get to do like a smart informed gay crowd who i'm going to be able to like tell jokes that i would have to like build straight people up to or sort of like spoon feed to them a little more but also like there's nothing more fun than taking an audience full of people who don't know you and don't know what they're in for and like turning that into something lovely like i did a week in scottsdale and there were all of these sort of like well-dressed 28 year olds who did not know what they were showing up for and being able to turn that into a great show where they were in love with me by the end of it was like the most fun. Right. Um, now do you find being known from like Chelsea lately? And Oh, can I change my answer? Sure. One time at the West Tide comedy theater, there was just an audience that for, it was like 12 people in the audience, nine of whom were South Asian women. And I was just like, all right, fuck the other three of you. These are just jokes for these nine South Asian women. Um, and I just sort of like riffed off things that I had. And luckily, Aparna and Charla was on the show. And so there were a couple of jokes where I was like, does this scan or does this land? And she was like, yes. And then she came out after me and she was just like, I just want to say I was partially responsible for what just happened here. And I'm sorry. And you're welcome. Uh, and it was just those moments where you like get to delve into material you never thought you would do or riff in a direction you never thought you would get to riff. That's that's super fun. Now, when you're on a lineup of different comics, uh, whether you're going on in the middle or, you know, you know, there's you know, there's comics going on after you. Do you still do your your act like, you know, because I think sometimes more direct comics can turn a room. Well, that's the interesting thing of I mean, definitely in situations where I have been on a standard like club three comic show, I understand things like, you know. I love crowd work, but I'm not going to crowd work before somebody who's like a real headliner because I don't want to weird up the room before then. Or what? understanding that if I talk to the audience, they're going to be shouty or afterwards. And like in one, if I, if I talk to the audience and some, one or more people are overreacting to that and are wanting to talk too much, I understand that my job before getting off stage is not to get a big laugh. My job before getting off stage is to make them scared enough and understand what their job is. Like the the best thing in, in that situation is being able, we, like we romance the idea of sort of like blasting somebody and putting them in their place. It's like, no, you want to rehabilitate them as an audience member. You want them to be able to be a good audience member because if you blast them, you might scare the rest of the audience. So, I mean, I am rarely worried that what anything I'm going to uh, like, I, I definitely don't think I worry about going too dirty before anyone who's coming after me. Um, but I do sort of think about have I anxious up, like ha have I gotten the crowd too riled up Right. and is it going to fuck with the people after me? But I have to say, Earl, I have, uh, for so many alt shows in Los Angeles, I have become what I like to refer to as a headliner of attrition, which means um, uh, four other people who are more famous and beloved than I am are on the show but want to leave. Um, and so there is a, you know, grim 
hey, can you go last? Uh, and I'm always like, sure, um, because I like it. Well, it gets me, uh, as you can tell, Guy, I don't really plan any questions, but uh, I, I believe in a stream of consciousness podcast. But you have an iPad in front of you that you're consulting, or is that just a MacBook Air? That is an iPad. I, I like to take, I'm looking at your Wikipedia. Yes. Uh, because I'm fascinated that you went to law school, which... You know, I shouldn't be surprised at because you. I've always thought of you as a very cerebral comic. Like, I'm the opposite. Uh, you know, I would rather joke about the 80s hair band Rat just because I have an obsession with that music and just, you know, the, the videos and the songs were so stupid. I can't imagine in any lifetime you making a joke about a song from Bon Jovi. Um, I mean, you're too smart for it. No, but I mean, I do pop culture stuff all the time and I have to write pop culture stuff all the time. And I think one of the most fun things is like having to go into a research place and learn about something enough. Like my first writing job was for a show about video games. and I don't really know much about video games. And like, so I had to learn how to, and also because it was about video games, it was also for like boys who were like 13 to 18. And so I needed to sort of like write stuff that was for them. So I, for like my first year at the job, I was like, you have to put a sports joke in every in every show. And I hated it. And I was mad at myself, but I like, I learned about sabermetrics, you know, um, I learned enough. Um, I probably eventually I calm myself down in difficult situations by like, do like just reading a nice Wikipedia entry. Uh, and I have never thought about going to eighties hair bands, but I really should because I could always use the trivia. Well, it's just, uh, it was such a, uh, silly, you know, there were songs about fucking 17 year old girls and, um, you know, the videos, the, the, the guys look like girls. Yes. Uh, well, those guys who sang songs about fucking 17 year old girls, they're not going to be able to direct any guardians of the galaxy movies. Oh, I hope, I hope they're comfortable with that. That's a whole, everyone's going down. It's true. Um, what do you think about that? Like, you know, if, because I saw some of the jokes, I, I, I gotta be honest with you. I thought they were pretty funny. But, uh, I mean, tweets from three or four years ago, I, I, I wouldn't be able to get hired. I, I think it is a very different, like a, a very different situation between people who committed like very unsavory or criminal acts against other people. And it wasn't mentioned because of patriarchy and because we don't believe women or it was mentioned and we just didn't follow it up because we don't believe women. Um, the thing, the thing that is interesting to me about these conservatives digging up these tweets from the past is just sort of like well that's what so much of comedy was then like in 2007 2008 you couldn't do a stand-up act without saying the word faggot you know um and i don't think that was a good thing i found it quite annoying but behaving there's just something so bizarre about behaving as though we weren't all alive and present then, you know, right. it's like, or like, you know, sort of when we behave as though, um, you know, a majority of this country opposed gay marriage until like six weeks ago, you know, like we've all been, so many of us have been participatory in bad things. And I think it is important to show the capacity for growth. Right. Like I, I do like, here's the thing. You know that baseball player who 
tweeted terrible stuff. Oh yeah, the guy from Milwaukee. Yes. I mean, it's like at the same time, fuck him. I don't like him. I don't like his stupid, like, uh, non-apology that only happened when it might cost him his career. But I also think behaving like a a kid, like a high school kid who plays baseball too much isn't going to do stuff like that is like ridiculous. We should try to be better. But then, yeah, the notion of sort of like going back into someone's tweets. Oh, there was this really interesting moment uh, where somebody dug into the tweets of these like um, dumb hot guys in Brooklyn who were just like Instagram famous uh, and found that they like in high school had used racial slurs and stuff like that. And like it became a whole thing and everybody was yelling at them. And then the dude who made the accusation, somebody went back through his Twitter and he had said terrible things about Jews and used the C word. Um, And it's just like, let's all admit that the world is a better place now than it was five years ago or 12 years ago or whatever, but also admit that like it took our personal growth. I hate people pretending that they're perfect and they've always been perfect. Way more eloquent than I ever could have expressed. I was just shouting and long winded. But that's what I love. I don't want to talk on a podcast. People all know my story by now. They, they want to hear yours. <laughs> and I can't think of a more perfect guest to ask this question to. It's really one of the few things that bothers me, but stand-up has now become the last option for people who have, like, you know, like a Jeremy Piven. Yes. Um, you know, I heard him, and, and he might be the greatest guy on earth. I don't know. But I heard him at the Comedy Store about two months ago saying, I think I got this now. And it was just like, as someone who's almost done it for 20 years, it's like, wow, I don't think I have it. Does do you uh, should I let that bother me that celebrities who are kind of on the outs of you know what happened to him and well I hate that the way the business works in so many ways is can you get three hundred people to show up in Columbus Ohio you know I mean that's how it works and there are a lot of um, uh, oh I recently tweeted um, I got into comedy the old fashioned way mixed martial arts fighting. <laughs> Um, but, um, the thing is, is I think it is very hard for somebody who is already famous to learn to become a standup. I think that the fact that an audience is ready to like them and ready to laugh at them means that it will be astoundingly hard for them to push themselves and find the place to be able to manage and control that. That must make sense to you that like the, (laughs) the things that we learned that are the real craft of standup, you don't learn if you're comfortable, if you start out being comfortable on stage and well-liked. It's one of the reasons I think it is hard for a lot of improvisers to learn standup because they can be fine on stage for a while. Um, And I think like you learn so much about standup by failing and being truly uncomfortable on stage though there are a number of really great improvisers who have who are some of my favorite uh stand-up comics um you know uh and eliza skinner for one um but i I mean it it doesn't it makes me feel a little mad that people have such like 
a thin understanding of what standup is. Um, it's hard work, man. Yeah. Um, but I, but I also think like, I don't know why it bothers me. No one's going to fall in love with a Jeremy Piven set, you know, like let's hope Netflix isn't going to give Jeremy Piven an hour, but it's also like no one wants or needs or, or hungers for the standup that he's going to give them. I mean, it's hard enough for people who are very good standups who have gotten to a point in their life that they are very successful to continue to create good or interesting material. Like it is very rare that, you know, I I don't need to watch Jerry Seinfeld talk about socks anymore, you know, or like one time a former employeress of mine, uh, Ms. Chelsea Handler, she was like, I have a new joke. And it was a joke about the seats on private planes. And it was like, no, that's not, you can't do that. Now that brings up a good point when you're writing for big name comic like Chelsea Handler, how much honesty do you give them? Like if you don't like a joke they're doing or an idea they bring to you, like, do you like (laughs) rein back a little or go, no. Well, it's that thing of, it's an interesting mix of like, they hired you for your best judgment. And she, you know, was really great about that. And she wanted to hear what you actually thought, but then she also had her take and she would or wouldn't listen to, you know, um, I, or like somebody like Joan Rivers, it was really wonderful because she had been doing this for so very long that there always was the danger of like being out of touch. And so Joan was the best about like, there was this one time I like incorrectly report on it in my book. My life is a goddess available July 31st, wherever books are sold. Um, But it was some pop culture reference that she didn't understand. She didn't know. Um, and everybody in the room laughed at it. And then when she left the room, she took the head writer by the hand and was like, explain that to me. Because if it was a joke that got a good response from her room of writers, she wanted to be able to tell that joke, but she needed to understand it. And I was just like, I want, I hope I can be that person when I am 80, 81 years old. Also, you should read, you should read my, you should read the thing I wrote in it for you. Oh, I will. Yes. Right now? Right now. Oh, okay. Hold on. I have a guy's book. It's hard here. I don't have an assistant. Earl, thank you for having a very good body for a man of your age. I try, guy. I try. It's inspiring. I mean, I work out only for women. Uh, if uh, You know, you should work out for yourself. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't work out for other... Uh, reasons other than your health but you know i assume women like to fuck a guy who looks good yes and uh and i mean you live in west hollywood proper i'm sure it gets you slightly quicker service at the yogurt place like (laughs) when you go to yogurt stop if you're wearing i mean if you're wearing a baggy t-shirt no one's going to notice but if you're wearing something that you know is like hitting things right i'm sure that the yogurt guy is like how can i help you well, I am obsessed with fashion. That's how I was raised by my mom. And so, uh, you know, I know when I see a girl with her tits popping out in a nice bra or uh, shirt or whatever, I'm like, I'm sure they're the same. They want to see me in a nice John Barbados, uh, Robertson and Melrose is the only location I go to personally. 
Uh, I, that's not a plug for them. They're not giving me free shit. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I just, you know, it's very, uh, sometimes I feel like I work out for the wrong reasons. That's silly, but you're also working out, I believe you said earlier, you're working out at um, Equinox. at Equinox in West Hollywood, and everyone there is working out for the wrong reasons. Also, I don't, I don't hold with your heteronormative masculine notion of what the right reasons are. Like, I remember the first friend of mine uh, who was in CrossFit... Uh, he was always tweeting or like Facebook posting about how like, you know, you, you're working out, but like you really your body learns how to really do stuff like you. you It's useful muscle. And it's like, fuck you, buddy. I mean, it's just no homo Pilates. Like you are just working out so you can be hot for other people. That said, one time I was in New, uh, in Las Vegas and like a bunch of like mixed martial artist guys came through and I remember actively being like, Oh, those muscles are for something like that's always nice right. when it's like that or like the NFL players who like kind of look like they're fat and then, but they are just like balls of muscle and power. And it's like so cool that they are like so well developed, but not in a way that's showy. And I'm a little bit proud for them, but I would always like a gay guy who has muscles that are only for show much better. Well, like my favorite MMA fighter is this Russian guy named Fedor, who might have the worst body of any pro athlete ever, but he was great. He was the best ever. He just, he was like kind of dumpy, n not really muscular, but he was great. I don't need that. That's why my favorite sport is Survivor on CBS. Richard Hatch. Um, wh What about Richard? Are you guys friends? No, he was the first winner. I know, but I really like... There, are, there's always like some bartender who's just, um, oh, it's exciting. I'm just, uh, I'm just, yeah, I, guy, like I said, I'm a one man operation. So as I you're talking, it. I'm sending out a tweet saying, "Hey, look who's on the podcast." Thank you. Um, but there's always one guy on a season of Survivor who's like a hot bartender who is good at all of the athletic things, and you just get to be so proud of him for how hot he is and how good at climbing things and swimming he is. And then eventually uh, a coalition of like um, middle-aged women and marketing interns from New York are, will will take him out. I love, uh, I'm a big brother man myself. Oh, really? Uh, versus Survivor. Uh, I've only watched one season of Big Brother and it was a fucking coronation. <laughs> like it was... Uh, uh, Paul, Armenian Paul. Yeah, with uh, the beard. Yeah, just sort of like marching his way to victory. Did you watch Celebrity Big Brother? You know, I did. Uh, I don't like it when you have millionaires, which I'm assuming all of those people were. I know the Broadway singer. Maybe she's not. You want to know who officially endorsed my book, My Life as a Goddess, available July 31st, wherever books are sold, in the form of a video, Marissa Jarrett Winoker, winner. The only winner of American Celebrity Big Brother, also for Tony winner, uh, uh, Broadway's original Tracy Turnblad. But does someone like that make a lot of money? Like, and I'm not, as they say on RuPaul's Drag Race, I throwing shade. I've, I don't know what a Tony Award winner makes. I don't understand the economy of Broadway because it just seems very strange and it's so weird that there are all of these dancers who are like working hard just for the chance at one of those jobs i'm not talking about marissa i'm talking about that sort of thing but um 
Marissa, you know, she's had like a complex and wonderful career. She was like on a couple of talk shows. Uh, but more than that, her husband is the showrunner of Crashing. So they're doing fine. They have a home in Toluca Lake. I was not in the roast battle episode of Crashing, just for the record. Oh, was there a roast battle episode of Crashing? Yes, and it was a very familiar storyline to me where a guy battles his girlfriend. Hmm. Oh. Only one couple has ever done that in the history of roast battle. Hmm. Anyway. When is your book out again, guy? Uh, my book, My Life as a Goddess, is available July 31st. Uh, pre-order today. I, I need to rack up those sales. Um, there are lots of fun stories in it. Um, yeah, let's get into what the book is about. Like, I have some other questions because I've watched several gay-themed shows. Okay. But what... Is it a straight biography or tell tell me and my fans? Okay, so I started out writing it just as the like book that every comedian is supposed to write, which is like sort of humorous stories from uh, growing up and stuff. Um, but then this editor who I didn't end up working with listened to my podcast, which is like a pop culture podcast. And she was like, well, you should talk about pop culture too. And the thing is, is I, in so many ways, like being a gay guy and being fat and weird, like I don't necessarily fit into the way that we tell stories. And so this book is sort of me at the same time telling my own stories, but also looking at the way that stories about those things are told. Like I have a chapter that talks about being fat where I also talk about the biggest loser and this is us. Or like I, my chapter about my relationship with my dad is told through the structure of his favorite movie, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. And so, uh, you know, I like, in talking about moving to LA, I also talk about um, Entourage and the comeback as sort of these two different visions of LA. Um, so that is my book. Also, there are lots of jokes in it and lots of random references to things that I find interesting and you won't, but also there are footnotes. I will read the whole book. I hope so. You don't, you don't have to, of course. Our friendship can exist on its own. Yeah, but I feel we have a deeper understanding of each other now. Uh, I, I hope so. Because I, I've always looked up to you. Uh, I've always really enjoyed your work, girl. Well, but I really like... You know, I've been around a few unscrupulous people the last few years. And I just like your attitude. Your no-bullshit style. Which I wish... I, I find Hollywood to be such a... I almost went to therapy recently to deal with the, the bullshit of Hollywood. I just don't understand it. It's annoying, but also everybody here is doing fine. And we've got that lovely John Varvatos boutique at um, Robertson and Melrose. And, you know, try to find that in Kansas City. And uh, the lovely Brooke Worrell, who custom makes my clothes now. That's ridiculous. That's pretty exciting. You're very fancy. Also uh, makes Duff and Slash's pants. Oh. So uh, if you're looking for a good cut, now she ain't cheap, boys. All hell's Brooke Loose on Instagram. And no, I don't get free clothes. It's just being supporting other people. Which uh, I believe people, you've supported other comics, gotten them gigs, writing gigs. Yes. Uh, how many people would ask you to get on Chelsea lately? Oh, people would ask me pretty frequently. I did what I could. I wasn't that. I wasn't that successful. 
Because what can you do? Like, I think people think, like, I would have loved to have been on it, but I was like, yeah. it's, I, it can't be that. Hey, guy, can you get me on? You can't get them on. I mean, it's it's weird. It would come in fits and starts. They would find people and they would fall in love with them. Uh, you know, I, if I had somebody who was good, I would go into the booker. Like it's once you have been a writer for a certain period of time, you do feel comfortable going in and just saying, yeah, you want to know who's great, blah, blah, blah. But there are also like seven other comics there or whatever, who are also writers. And like, I would say so-and-so's great. And then somebody else would be like, she's weird. And I'd be like, all right, fuck you. Right. Like Josh Wolf might have someone he wants to get on or, you yeah. know, uh, who, who, I mean, I've had a lot of Chelsea lately comics on this couch. Uh, Ryan Stout. Yeah. Well, a lot of people went through there. I love Ryan Stout. We oh, started, we started out together in Frisco. Yes. Uh, now you made the, the leap from Minnesota law school. Uh, did you, go should i go to new york for comedy frisco la i'm from northern california and i went to berkeley and so i was just like moving back to berkeley okay but it was also like i had sort of a little bit gone out onto the comedy scene there uh my last year at berkeley and then i like really wanted to do stand-up but i like didn't even think about stand-up elsewhere when i was when i was going to law school i (laughs) it's so stupid but i was like um really hoping I got into Michigan because I somehow thought that I could like drive down to Detroit and take second city classes. It's so weird, but it all just comes down to why didn't I just go to USC where I could have like started stand up here, but I'm also just glad I didn't start stand up here. Also USC was demanding that I get private loans and that had to be quite the, uh, the loan. Law school is very expensive. Minnesota paid for paid for mine. So that was uh, a big reason that I went. Um, but it was also hard to like, it w- was like sort of seeing that stand up was a thing that I really loved and then going and doing something else and sort of like trying to push myself along that path. It was hard and weird and it was really great to get back to, um, San Francisco. And I had just been in such a depression after cause during law schools when I came out and it was just very bad in so many ways. And like, can I ask why? Like, uh, like just did people not had no idea you were gay or, well, I mean, it's that thing of like, how did people not know one of my fucking law professors? I love her. She was like, your parents didn't know you were gay. And I was like, no. And she was like, have they met you? And I was like, Hey, we're getting real sassy here, Miranda. Um, her name was Miranda. She was not a Miranda. No, she is a Miranda. Um, but my point was, uh, yeah, my parents dealt with it very poorly. They were super mad at me. And then it's also just a whole world of issues that I had never dealt with before. that were like scary. Like, will anyone ever like me? Will anyone ever be attracted to me? What's dating? Like, how do you have sex in a butt? Like, you know, are you a top or a bottom? If I can ask, um, I do both things. So you're versatile. Uh, yes, but no one, no, no one likes to say that. Um, like it, it seems like a, a squishy response. Um, but yeah, that is the functional answer. Well, I'm I, a much bigger fan. Uh, as I was like, honestly, like, Butts are nice, but I am perfectly happy with uh, with other stuff as well, like oral and all that stuff. Yes. Um, do you prefer to um, 
trying to keep this clean. Um, like I like to give before I receive. My mom told me one thing about sex. Make the girl happy first. They'll always come back. Um, well, I mean, one of the lovely things about a man is like, you know, if they're happy, like, you know, there's like an end result that says like, well, you did something right. But um, I, when I was in law school and sort of like learning about this stuff, I always um, uh, like it was always reciprocal oral or reciprocal whatever. And um, one of my friends was then like, oh, no, guys like it way better if you don't if you don't blow them like you seem much toppier if they just come and service you. Is that because of your person like you're uh, not aggressive, but you're uh, your your personality? I have sometimes said that no one has sex with me who doesn't want to be at least a little bit scared during sex. Well, you're an intimidating dude. You're well spoken. You're big dude, and I don't mean like. Well, I ain't talking then, Earl. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm gigantic. Um, I don't think you're gigantic, but, but like, uh, I I think so. But I also just think that like, um, gay men, like everyone else in our society, fetishizes masculinity and fetishizes sort of like. Um, people being demanding and commanding. Uh, what am I saying? But uh, the point is, is that like after like three or four months of not blowing anybody, I was like, I miss the taste of dicks. And um, I realized that giving a blowjob is as much for me as it is for the other person. See, I have a hard time uh, getting blowjobs uh, just because I can't imagine it, that a dick in your mouth I know you're doing it to please the person, but I, I can't imagine that. Maybe like, imagining that is the first step to feminism. Maybe if you guys ridiculed women less for the things that are supposed to bring you pleasure, they would be able to be more enthusiastic about them. I hate the fact that so many heterosexual women have to construe the majority of sexual things they do as like this indignity, this burden. Oh, I have to, you know, uh, no, like the thing is, is gay guys are able to freely love being come upon and all of that because it doesn't, it isn't dehumanizing, you know, because we're men and we just can't be dehumanized in the same way. Um, well, I find gay men to be much more sexually aggressive. Like, yeah, well, I think, um, that's because we haven't spent all of human history dehumanizing half of our participants. <laughs> uh, and I think women have a whole lot more reason to be scared and to be cautious. Um, and I think, you know, we're able to be a whole lot more uh, adventurous and risky because we don't have, because being a woman is so risky, you know, like when you're two dudes, like half of the fun of like a, f like a phone hookup is the fact that you're going to some stranger's house and who knows what's going to happen there. You mean like a grinder yes. situation? Um, and like, um, you know, any like if if women did that they would end up getting murdered you know right. i mean uh i've met a few uh interesting women on uh this is back in the la express personal ad days yes 
But I'm just saying, if you guys murdered women less, they would be more likely to just like go into a bush and fuck. Like the two guys outside my house last night. Yes. Uh, but I just, what I found interesting. You're the one who decided to live here. Go to Valley Village. You, you, you don't want people like, uh, you know, uh, having gay sex in your bushes. Valley Village is there. Well, even, it's going to be like seven degrees hotter. Uh, you know, I don't mind the neighborhood. You know, <laughs> I don't mind it that much where I want to move to Valley Village. I uh, don't figure I'm so good looking that every gay man wants to fuck me so I can live in this neighborhood. Uh, I certainly get propositioned a fair amount. Uh, but it's important to remember they're propositioning nearly everyone. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'm the only guy. I mean, I had a guy on uh, on Larrabee. I don't know why I'm telling people what street I'm on. But uh, I was walking my dog, and he, I guess he's in the gay world. He was calling it cruising. Mm -hmm. He's cruising me, which is my favorite Al Pacino movie. I've never seen it. We're going to talk about that in two seconds. Okay. How are you on time? Are you good? I'm absolutely great. Um, and this guy was like vibing me and i'm like hey dude i'm straight you know but there's plenty on larabee for your uh needs absolutely and he just looked at me and said well just so you know bro i give the best blowjob on larabee and like that's a bold statement man. i know i i wouldn't say this is very high competition here i used to live on westbourne which is a couple of blocks down let me tell you this was some of the finest grindering in all of the all of the english speaking world like it's it's high level and you have uh mask how old this person was i mean i i'm pretty good at uh gauging men's age in this neighborhood i would say uh mid 40s okay and this is coming close to me doing material to you in uh on a podcast and i apologize to that but earl if you ever want to have a truly craftsman like hand job you get a moderately unattractive gay guy in his mid forties who is a little bit sad on the inside to come take care of business because oh does he understand the equipment? You're right. I mean, I, I um, but I don't know if I, you know, I'd rather just jack off. That's fair. That's fair. But like you know, it's like hands free driving. Uh, it's just let somebody else take care of the trouble. Oh, uh, no, I get it. And also it's just sort of like almost like a physician, a sort of like distance from the situation that allows him to make the best choices for you. Well, let me ask you this. Cause I had this conversation uh, with a friend that, you know, a big eighties rocker guy. I told him the story uh, once David Lee Roth, diamond Dave uh, once tried to pick up on me at a strip club. What? his hand on my thigh and he had like six beautiful strippers around him he made a beeline towards me and put his hand on my thigh pretty high up and i got a big hammer so it was it was pretty close to that and he just looks at me and goes you look dangerous <laughs> and my friend was like well that means he's a fag and i said i don't think so man because this is a guy who's fucked five six seven thousand women to me he's just bored yeah so i don't i mean i guess you could just say he's bi but like i think when you i can't imagine sleeping with five six seven thousand women you know uh and being bored with women but i guess 
also, you've never been David Lee Roth. Like, I'm sure, um, I have to, uh, I enjoy the hell out of that story. I do love uh, the idea of the guy who's just sort of like, had so much vagina, he's just looking for a change of pace. Yeah, I mean. Something to cleanse the palate. Pussy was a gateway drug to dick for him. I don't think so. I think he was just like having a dick course in between pussy feasts right to like recalibrate I, he was just bored with pussy yes now, i don't want to be too dirty because i know we're promoting your book my life is a goddess available july 31st wherever books are sold and please that's amazon uh okay here's yes amazon barnes and noble you can pick it up at your local bookstore will there be an itunes uh audiobook uh yes uh there's an uh audiobook on audible also we didn't say uh the forward is by mindy kaling the audiobook forward is read by mindy kaling and i know there's a huge overlap in fan bases between earl skakel and mindy kaling you know i'm not gonna bullshit you i don't know who she is from the office I d- i've never watched it oh okay and that wasn't me throwing shade at her yes I, uh i'm so stuck in the 80s the last tv show i watched was miami vice ah miami vice is a hell of a show but let's talk about riptide okay um let's talk about cruising <laughs> i've never seen cruising it is one of the but darkest. Why don't, why don't you want to talk about Riptide? It answered the question like what if Miami Vice were sexier and funnier? I mean, Riptide was good. But I was just such a uh, you know, Miami Vice was the perfect mixture of uh 80s cheese with the music, the clothes. It hit every mark for me. I, in the 80s I wasn't watching dramas. Hour longs were for adults. I was sign me up for those situation comedies. But you were saying about cruising, the Al Pacino film. Very dark. It's very um I know it caused a lot of controversy in the gay world because it felt uh they the gay community felt it portrayed them as nothing more than just like bloodthirsty, horny. Yeah, we were sort of like uh James Jumming has a very funny bit about it, but we've always been sort of portrayed as these like weird villains um outside of normalcy and uh cruising as i understand it was like a very like verite attempt to sort of represent that but it's also sort of funny that it comes was it like 81 when did it come out 1980 directed by uh, william friedkin well oh wow that's i mean that's a very respectable director to have on something like that but i mean it's so funny that the search to have to say like ooh gay guy sexy but gross or like like sorted but gross is like you have this movie where like they're evil they want to kill you all they're doing is having blowjobs and murdering and then like luckily two years later um like uh, a disease would make it so much easier for people to say terrible gross things about gay people for the following 15 years because come 1983 you can't have a gay guy in media without him uh, just being awful AIDS right now or HIV um, like how do you think the movie Philadelphia did it help or hurt the gay community I mean all of these things are stepping stones and having you know in 1992 or 93 whenever that was having beloved straight guy nobly play long-suffering gay guy who never did a wrong thing in his life um 
was helpful to us. But now we're still in this world of like straight people thinking they're doing some gigantic noble thing by playing their best guess of what a gay person, what gayness is like. And that gets kind of annoying. I mean, like Philadelphia is hopelessly out of date, but was good for the time that it happened. I think far more interesting are those attempts to represent gay gay guys who weren't nobly suffering, which didn't really happen in 93. Like I, in my book, I talk about my best friend's wedding and the way that Rupert Everett in that movie is this like dramatic shift from that, like 15 years of like, it's always a straight man playing a gay guy with AIDS. (laughs) And now suddenly a gay guy, like it is just the fact that like we got the better drugs for HIV a couple of years, my best friends before my best friend's wedding. And then we were able to sort of say like, Oh, what if, what if they were a person who, who is at the edge of a straight person's story still, but it's better. Well, I would say my favorite gay themed movie. I have two favorite gay themed movies. One is it's my party with the great Eric Roberts and Margaret Cho. And, and I wish people knew who this guy was a little bit more of this generation gregory harrison oh um trapper john md i mean absolutely wonderful yes um and wasn't he also in longtime companion he might have been i'm gonna like i said you know rogan has an assistant who can look up stuff yes uh i don't so i'm gonna look up gregory harrison's you do have imdb page you do have plastic brass knuckles that allow you to hold your microphone with greater comfort that makes it a lot easier for you to do the one-handed eye padding well these are uh my only sponsor guy Uh uh-huh is the singer from rat his name is steven piercy a friend in full disclosure uh, he has uh, his company called Mike Knuckles. So, uh, you know. Oh, the, okay. So the, those are specifically for microphones. Yeah. So if you're a comic out there and you want to bomb with some style, uh, go to at Mike Knuckles on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I don't get any money from it. He just gave me a few for free. Can I tell you the most significant place of 1980s uh, hair metal in my um, in my world? Please do. I think this is defined as hair metal but uh in high school in the the weight training room um there was like a boom box that had uh metallica self-titled in it and we would just every day like for weight training f- before football season and then every day in weight training class we would just listen to that tape and then when it was done, you would turn it over and then you would just keep listening to that tape. So I know all of the words to all of the songs on that album. Now, uh, well, Metallica was too good for my taste. Oh, okay. I liked, uh, I guess they would call it cock rock. Okay. Uh, butt rock. Uh, I'm not sure why they called it those names, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, like in most of Rat's early videos, they look like pirates. You know, the, they had women's clothing on, uh, makeup. Uh, they look like women. Now, what was the Gregory Harrison movie? I can't find Longtime it. Companion in 1983, okay. 84, 85? 83 or 93? 80. Okay. He probably was in Okay. Uh, no, he was not. All right. Sorry. No, it's all good. Uh, also, it may have been slightly later than that, but it's probably not Gregory Harrison. It's just somebody else who's like, like Gregory Harrison, somebody who was on... Uh, uh, like a hot guy from primetime drama 
in the late 70s, early 80s. Maybe it was Rick Springfield. Uh, no, Rick Springfield was a soap star. He's not a late night actor. Um, and then my second favorite gay movie is uh-huh. Jeffrey. Jeffrey's so wonderful. Um, because the Pretender, the guy Michael T. Weiss, I, uh, yes, was uh, in that TV show, The Pretender, which was about a guy who knew everything. Yes, uh, like in one episode, he was an airplane pilot. You know, the next episode, he was a fully functional doctor. Like he he knew everything, but who he was. I believe it was set in Sacramento, which is always exciting. Yes. Um, um, and then you had uh, who else was in that? Uh, was Stephen Weber? Oh yes, uh, Patrick Stewart. I uh, like. Um, do we have? Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. No, it's just Patrick, it's Patrick Stewart. Stewart. Now, is yes. he gay in real life? Because if no. he's not, wow, he no. played an amazing. He's, he's got that much younger and he's like best friends with Ian McKellen. Um, but Jeffrey is basically um, Paul Rudnick wrote a play um, that was basically like, how does a guy start dating again? At, like after being HIV positive. And that was also sort of like from the time when drugs got a little bit better and people weren't just dying. They were having to live with HIV. Uh, and it's also from this run of the mainstream, like the studios started having their indie or like they're sort of like s- small labels, like um, would like everybody turned out one gay movie in like 1998 or 1999 because they were like, Hey, maybe this could be a market for movies. And then they made like three or four rom-coms uh, the major Hollywood studios, and then it just ended. And there essentially haven't been good mainstream movies for gay people where gay people are like human characters and protagonists right? that weren't like sad Oscar movies where it is straight people playing them. Um, we have these weird things. The gay version of Medea movies are sort of weird, shitty, just for us kind of thing. We have these things called the eating out movies and and there's sort of like a genre around that but it's like a bad little um like farce comedy but also there are dicks and fucking like there's dicks and and everyone is very hot so they are all very bad actors my friend is in them rebecca oh she's blonde yes yes Uh, really uh i mean we're not like great friends no but it well it's the responsibility of a woman in an eating out film to be the most interesting thing and all of the comic relief because the guy's job is to be hot not to be interesting right and uh my i must mention my very good friend uh steven gorino yes who's in i'm dying up here uh he is gay and uh you know very uh, open about it Yes, but he's, I forget which one he's in. It's weird because like Drew Drogi is in one. Um, like there, there's always like one gay comedian who's like, I'm the administrator of this drama camp that people in their mid twenties are going to, or something like that. Who has like two speeches that are very funny. Um, I assume I'm going to play like a driving instructor and eating out 17. Let me see. I could see you being. Uh, I, you know, I have a real eye for casting. Okay. If my comedy career never takes off, which is a distinct possibility, <laughs> I like to hold on to things. Uh, I would love to cast movies uh, or TV shows because I got a real eye for it. Uh, I would cast you as um, maybe a football coach. You know, because there was a movie 
1980. It was Ralph Macchio's first movie. It's called Up the Academy. I'm not familiar with that film. Most people aren't. It's a mad uh, magazine's first foray into uh, movie making. Uh And they were so embarrassed uh, at how raunchy and and inappropriate the movie was. They took out all references to, you know, Alfred E. Newman. Uh One of the lead actors, Ron Liebman. It's like this legendary, like actor it's like take my name out of the credits yeah uh, it's just a silly like porky's uh american pie type movie uh but now, that was an era when we had a lot of boobs in mainstream comedies right and then it evolved into a lot of car explosions in mainstream comedies there was a while there where if you were making a mainstream comedy a lot of car explosions right 1980 weird uh year for uh, movies you had uh like Escape from New York, which was very uh, ghetto is the wrong word, but it was uh, low budget, you know, only made for like two million dollars and ended up making like a hundred. One of the interest, I, I am fascinated by the years after Jaws, when before that we were all making like all films were smallish in their way, unless they were like splashy musicals or like around the world in 80 days, all movies were smallish. And then after that, people start trying to figure out the blockbuster, but then you still have these like weird sort of thinky small movies that are, that are coming out. And then you get, advances in the kind of bigness that you can have by the end of the eighties, you have like Oscar movies like platoon or, um, or the last emperor or something like that. That isn't big in the way of jaws, but is still like, you know, nobody's making who's afraid of Virginia Woolf anymore or, uh, any of that. But no, 1980 is like a weird transitional year. And you also have all of those, 1970s auteur guys who we got excited about are making their shitty movies like you know you're getting reds which is great but also like a little long for my taste heaven's gate or the wonderful but long and dry mccabe and mrs miller which is not 1980 but is somewhere pretty close to there yeah i mean it was uh yeah, and then you had star wars in full like yeah razzle dazzle effect i I'm a huge uh, fan of the movie Big Wednesday, which was a surf movie. I'm not a surfer, with Jan Michael Vincent. Now I'm love Jan Michael Vincent. I am as straight as you can get, guy. Yes, but I can appreciate the beauty of a man. <laughs> like maybe living on Larrabee has affected me, but yes, Jan Michael Vincent and Big Wednesday might be the most perfect looking man I've ever seen in my life. I have to say Jan Michael Vincent in that one Disney movie where he plays a child from Africa who gets right. brought back and is good at all of the sports. Cause he does a lot of not wearing clothes in that. And I was as a, a young person, like, Hey, what's going on? Who was your first? Like, uh, I mean, I remember for me, uh, like the first, like, Oh wow. Women are kind of, I'd like to put my dangling in that. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Cheryl Teague's, on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Uh, I would say that Dolph Lundgren and Rocky Four did a lot. I have a funny Dolph Lundgren story. Um, I, I, what a, a good look. Even today, as I'm assuming he's, I mean, I'm 49. He's got to be a couple years older than me, close to 60. He looks really good for an older guy. I haven't seen him in a while. Well, just look at an Expendables poster. Fair. I haven't seen any of those movies. I do think I would enjoy them. 
I have a question for you. Oh, you, oh please. But you, you can always ask me a question. All right. What is your favorite of the off-brand Star Warses that we got in me, say, eight years after Star Wars when everybody else was trying to figure out what's my Star Wars? I mean, I'm such a fan of the first three, which were the middle three. I mean, I loved how Lucas did that. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to I talk, know, I want to talk about shitty sci-fi. Uh, yes, I'm oh, sorry. It's... Uh, I mean, the one that came out in 2015, where in uh, Hans, no, The Force Awakens. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean, literally, like 1977 to 1986, you had Dune, Crawl, oh, okay. like uh, Beastmaster, even. Like, what of those, like, really spoke to you? Um, the Last Starfighter. Last Starfighter is so good. And also, just integrating strong elements of comedy. Like, we understood action comedies in the eighties. Like we really understood action comedies. They were so great. I, I enjoyed the heat. Like I like that we, Paul Figas tried to bring back the action comedy, uh, but with women in starring roles, but like 1980s, like especially those cop comedies, they were so good. And I, it, while it's in my head, night of the comet, which, uh, Oh, that was, but it was very strange. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a, definitely not a star Wars type, uh, but isn't that the the ensemble movie that's like four vignettes held together, or am I thinking of something else? No, Night of the Comet was. Uh, I guess it was Los Angeles uh, gets taken over by these really bizarre aliens. And, oh, uh, I was thinking of something else. And as you can tell, over your left shoulder uh, is the "They Live" mask. That's creepy. That Roddy Piper gave to me right before he passed. That's uh, amazing. Very creepy, but. I mean, that's not necessarily a science fiction film, but it was a John Carpenter. Uh, I like the story behind it that uh, he had just done a movie. I think it was uh, Big Trouble in Little China, huge bomb. And there was a lot of pressure on him to, you need a hit or, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, this business. Uh, and he somehow thought Roddy Piper would be the guy to get him that underground hit and he did he would john carpenter was right they live is like one of the most iconic uh, cult science fiction action movies ever i do not ever need to watch a horror film well i don't find many of them scary i just i do find them scary and i don't like it but hey i have to tell you about can i tell you about an amazing this is your podcast baby can i tell you about an amazing action comedy that you will enjoy I have a love of shitty action movies. Okay. So I probably will. Okay. But also, you love hockey, right? Indeed. All right. I need to tell you about the uh, 2005 Canadian film, uh, Bond Cop, Bad Cop. Um, and the premise is that there are a series of murders related to um, the movement of a venerable NHL team from Canada down to the United States. Uh, and the first murder happens right on the border between Ontario and Quebec. So guess who has to team up, but an English speaking Ontario cop who plays by the rules and a French speaking sexy cop who does everything his way. Um, and it is like this beautifully observed, like homage to American, like cop action comedies. 
Um, but through this very sort of like silly hockey obsessed um, sort of like Canadian culture clash. Well, hockey movies in general don't do well because it's such a niche sport to begin with, at least in America. I enjoy Slapshot. Oh, um, that's... I mean, that's the the gone with the wind of sports movies. Is should I watch Goon? No, I'm gonna. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's a true story. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, there was a hockey player by the name of Doug Smith, uh, who, and that's who the movie's based on. Um, he literally didn't know how to skate that well. He was just a great fighter at a. I think he was a bouncer, and uh, you know, I think someone gave him the idea. Why don't you? Pick up ice hockey. There's lots of fights, and you probably do well. And then, uh, you know, there you go. That's wonderful. He was a Canadian who was a bad skater. Well, I he uh, I think he was an American actually. Oh, okay. Uh, but um, you know, there's uh, there was another hockey player by the name of Jay Caulfield who didn't start skating until he was 15, which in hockey is like yeah, that's like starting comedy at 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh but he was this huge massive guy and he played football and i'm sure someone was like well dude you're a pretty big guy just you'll, you'll kill people yeah. uh young blood what is young blood rob Lowe, uh, 1986 uh cynthia gibb who uh just like for anyone in the mid 80s like she was like the girl um keanu reeves is this a rest? It's a hockey movie. All right, sorry. No, no, it's all good. Um, and there was a couple other. Uh, I mean, if I'm gonna go for a mid '80s Rob Lowe sports film, it's gonna be Oxford Blues. Great movie. My favorite Rob Lowe movie. I have an obsession with character actors. Okay. My favorite actor of all time is a man by the name of John Glover. Okay. Uh, who's who, gay? Who, who is John Glover? Uh, probably my favorite movie of all time is a movie called 52 Pickup with uh, Anne Margaret, Roy Scheider, uh, Chief Brody from Jaws, Clarence Williams III from The Mod Squad, and uh, John Glover plays the bad guy. And if there is an acting class for ba- for people who want to play bad guys, everyone should watch 52 Pickup. But what's the John Glover movie where I would be like, oh yeah, that guy? Uh, well, probably 52 pickup, but he was in the Rob Lowe movie, uh, Masquerade. Oh, which one was With the uh, Meg Tilly, uh, the blonde guy from Doug Savant from Melrose Place, where it's an uh, it's a uh, kind of a thriller. Uh, uh, Rob, Rob Lowe uh, and John Glover conspire to kill someone in the covered up fam- family money type drama. It's like that ABC show Revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he's not like if you look up john glover on imdb he's probably got 200 credits yeah he's that typical who is that guy i'm sure i would recognize him yeah and the uh you know i've tried to get him on the podcast but apparently he's uh, semi-retired in uh san francisco my favorite rob Lowe movie uh i mean is probably class um which is kind of a hockey movie like oh is there hockey in it well uh yeah, I love Class 1983. Uh-huh. What a cast of future stars. Yes. John Cusack. Joan uh, Cusack, I believe. Yes. Yeah. You want a good Joan Cusack movie, My Bodyguard. Oh, My Bodyguard is so good. Though, um, that's... Well, I always get that confused with Lucas. Uh, but, you know, such terrible things happened on the set of Lucas. Do you um, believe that? 
Um, Corey Haim, for those of you not knowing what me and Guy are talking about, insinuated that uh, Charlie Sheen may have uh, penetrated his buttocks. I would never put anything past Charlie Sheen. Well, this was the 80s, so I, I'm just saying I could see it. Oh, John Glover. He plays... Um, he was in a very good AIDS movie. Uh, um, he also plays like a dapper bad guy in uh, yes. some comedy that I'm thinking of. Oh, he, like he's the bad boyfriend in... Which is ironic because he's gay in real life. Yes. But he's very convinced. That's how good of an actor he is. But it's also exactly that kind of like um, prim villainy that we were talking about before. You know, sort of like the outsider who's just commenting on things. Well, I mean, in 52 Pickup, he, he plays it. It's probably a little over the top, but just... Uh, such an amazing bad guy and masquerade he was great Ch the chocolate war is another good movie he was in okay uh first of all oh he was in love valor compassion uh which is one of those movies where straight guys play gay guys i didn't know that he was uh gay um the chocolate war was one of those movies that was constantly sitting there at our video store and i was like what's that and then i never actually ended up watching it but there were so many like because that's, like, that's like a prep school movie right it's a movie where, yes, it's um, in a great cast. Uh, John Glover plays the uh, the brother, I guess you call it, uh, the priest or brother, whatever, who's uh, in charge of the school's chocolate sale. So he makes all the students sell chocolates, and it's real intense. And the kid who was the bodyguard in My Bodyguard is the... Uh, leader of this secret almost a skull and bones type uh, I, that are his hitmen basically i have not seen my bodyguard since it aired on like the disney sunday movie in like 1983 or whatever i've tried you know i've tried for so long to get the guy on my podcast i just tweeted people yeah hey will you do my podcast it's in the you know top 10 now and, and I, I i don't think most people care, yes. uh, but you know, some people, are, Oh yeah, I guess there's value in me going on this guy's podcast, but, uh, he has not really gotten back to me. Uh, cause I just, I love that movie. I made the effort to come here and I think people need to remember that when making their Amazon purchasing choices this week, July 31st, my life is a goddess. You're going to be buying cat food there or something. Just please support. We all, get if we give but aren't you fascinated with those people who had these like rich or interesting careers and then those careers ran their natural course i'm using this only as a segue to so i was watching the pyramid on game show network kind of obsessively it was a very particular kind of depression and the woman from three's a crowd the woman who played Jack Tripper's wife in Three's a Crowd. You mean Three's a Company? Th no, not Three's Company. After Three's Company ended, there was a spinoff series where Jack Tripper got married to a woman and also her father lived with them. And the woman was a bad actress. But every time she went on the pyramid, um, what's his name? Uh, who's the New Year's Eve countdown guy? Dick, Dick Clark. Clark. Dick Clark would ask her about her restaurant in the valley and then i just became obsessed with like learning about her restaurant in the valley and then about how her restaurant closed and she moved back to connecticut and started doing a lot like teaching yoga um and it's i'm a just tough business i am fascinated by careers like that okay we're gonna go with the three as a crowd let's see uh mary cataret 
Yes. That's got to be here. Uh, the great Robert Mandan. Richard Klein is uh, Larry, the horny neighbor guy. Yes. Uh, I'm fascinated when I see, like, uh, like I'm friends with Michael Talbot. Now, I say that name. Probably nobody right now knows who that is. He played the kind of chubby detective in Miami Vice. Uh-huh. The guy who was in, uh, responsible for all the bugging devices. Now, you would think if you were in Miami Vice which is arguably maybe next to the Cosby show, the top 80s TV show, maybe Dallas too. Yeah. uh, That you would get pretty constant work. Mm -hmm. He had to move back to Idaho and be a farmer. But I always, I don't crazy to me. I don't know how the residuals work for that. Like, I don't, I don't think they make that much in residuals off of those things. I think, well, I think, I mean, I'm not trying to get myself into the story, uh-huh. but like I make, uh, I mean, I'm not Russell Peters, right? but you know, the, the cartoon I'm on the jellies, uh-huh. and it's not like a sly plug. Yes. Uh, Sunday nights on adult swim. <laughs> I mean, I get pretty good residuals from that. And yes. even on, I'm dying up here and I'm a very small part of that uh-huh. show. Like I think the boom operator is ahead of me on the call sheet. Uh, <laughs> But, that's a very Los Angeles joke, but that's very funny. I mean, uh, it's true. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the residual checks aren't like, they're not that bad. Yes. Uh, so. Residuals uh, are amazing. You know, they're weird because lately they've been coming a lot. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a nice like. Sometimes. Sometimes I'll get like whiny to myself. I'll be like, well, your life is sad. And then I'll show up to my PO box and there are like five green writers guild residual envelopes. And it's just like, stop complaining, Branham. You're yeah. doing like people are sending you money for something you did six years ago. But I would imagine, I mean, I still get uh, money from bench warmers, which came out in 2006. It's not a lot on that. Is that a movie? It's a movie. Uh, Nick Swartz and uh, wrote a, a I don't want to say small part. It's a parts apart. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have to. Uh, it's an Adam Sandler, like a uh, Rob Schneider, David Spade baseball movie. Uh, I, silly. I, I, the pleasure I take anytime I'm like flipping through the channels and I see that the romantic comedy where I played the gay friend, no strings attached is on E entertainment television or something. I'm like, yay, I get a check in four months. Oh yeah. I mean, it's uh but I would think the Miami vice guy would be, I mean, that's, that's on Hulu. It's uh, on, uh, there's some, I mean, I have direct TV. There's some channel in the three hundreds that has always says Miami vice marathons. And I would think he would get a, 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 th- at least 50 60 grand a year of, you know i mean that's but you know they say the the brady bunch kids got nothing after the fifth airing of the yeah i mean because so. like residuals go down over time i don't understand how it works i just like the money oh yeah i mean uh what was i mean i know josh uh wolf said what he got you guys got for uh being just being on the panel yeah uh do you guys get residuals for that because they don't really replay that do they um no they don't i mean we got residuals when e was still rerunning it uh and those were very nice and very unexpected you want to know like totally biased on fx uh we only made one a week and they reran it constantly. And I made so much fucking money off of residuals for that. And that was pretty nice. Now, what show was that? That was Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. Okay. I mean, I'm an FX man, mainly Sons of Anarchy. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't know how believable the show was because Charlie Hunnam is, I don't see too many bikers who look like him. Yeah. I don't want that kind of masculinity in my television show. I love Katie Seagal and want her to work as much as possible. It's like you with like this deep love of Miami Vice. Miami Vice was cool. Love the intro. Love Highlight anywhere I can see Highlight. But if I'm going to have a 1980s crime solved, I want there to be more humor and I want there to be more sexual tension. Um, I recently rewatched two seasons of Heart to Heart and two seasons of uh, Moonlighting. And it was really hard to be like, Heart to Heart isn't great. Fucking Moonlighting. I mean, that show holds up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh you know, some some of those 80s shows. I tell you a show that holds up. What? And I've been on a real kick. What? The White Shadow. Really? And I plug this show to anyone who appreciates good writing. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's dad created it. And uh, it's just that's, a show about a white coach and then all uh, black. And that's like early 70s, right? That's uh, I think it went from 78 to 80. It was three seasons. But there are uh, seasons. Oh, that's were- later than I thought it was. But they did a lot of, uh, like, I'm Dying Up Here was 10 episodes. Uh, uh-huh. I think the first two seasons of The White Shadow were, like, 22 episodes. I mean, it's the best thing about old school television is, Jesus Christ, they made a lot of them. They were working the whole year. Yeah. But the writing on it, uh, I think everyone, I, I implore everyone to, if you don't want to go through all the episodes of The White Shadow, you're like, I, Earl, I'm not going to do that. Give me one episode. The episode in season two where the coach takes him to the snooty country club. Okay. Because that's very, you know, country clubs are very racist in general. Yeah. So they brought uh, two black players and Salami, who was like the dopey Italian guy, Mm -hmm. uh, Timothy Van Patten. A lot of talent on the White Shadow. He mm-hmm. ended up producing The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It was ahead of its time because they did a lot of uh, storylines about uh, pregnancies and uh, rape and... Uh, they had a great episode where Peter Horton mm-hmm. is one of my favorite character actors. He played a gay student. Mm-hmm. And this was in like 78. It is though, like those weird jet, the episodes like the very special episodes about gayness in the seventies are so interestingly different from the ones in the eighties because of HIV. Right. But there's um, one time I was just like on a kick of, um, TV episodes of television that had won the Emmy for best comedy writing. And I came across uh, an all in the family. That's about Edith's lesbian cousin. Um, Like her lesbian cousin dies. And then that woman's partner, like wants a tea set or something like that. It was silly, Um, but fascinating to know that they were dealing with stuff like that. Like um, what is your favorite episode of television? Do you have one episode of television that is your favorite? Uh, I do, and it's an All in the Family episode where uh, Sammy Davis goes to, uh, he left his briefcase in a cab, uh, and Arch- so he had to go over to Archie Bunker's house, and I think it's the best nine minutes of sitcom TV I've ever seen. You get life. black jokes and Jew jokes. But, you know, I mean, now they would seem tame, because, I mean, you can, uh-huh. you know, I mean, one season of uh, Sons of Anarchy, Henry Rollins had a tattoo that was open every episode that said, I kill yeah, on his chest. It wasn't even that shocking, but like that nine minutes where uh, Sammy Davis and Archie Bunker were uh, interacting was just like, wow. 
Those Norman Lear shows are amazing. You go back and watch them and they're so fucking funny the whole time. And they have like real issues in them. Like I watched the first season of Maud. There was this episode that was about like, like has Florida and her husband made enough money that she doesn't have to work anymore. And it was like fascinating issues going back and forth. But Earl, I will tell you what my favorite episode of television is. My favorite episode of television is the season three episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show road of the beautiful where uh, Rhoda enters a beauty contest um, and wins. But also like there's just this long, (laughs) like there's just this long picking out an outfit scene that is so full of jokes coming from so many directions. And it really was like just a different pace of sitcom writing, but that was so funny. Also Phyllis sings 10 cents a dance. Um, Like I kind of get mad that we don't know how to make television like that anymore. I don't know if it's possible. I just think it's, Well, hey, fucking new one day at a time is really fucking good. We could still make multicams like that that were good and interesting. We just have kind of, we're still trying to make friends. 20 years later, they're still trying to make friends and they don't know how. And like now everything is, I mean, now everything is a single cam where they are trying to make modern family. Um, But it's a little bit frustrating and also it's a little bit frustrating that this town doesn't know how to talk about something other than itself. Um, please don't be offended as a cast member of uh, I'm dying up here. Well, I will say no, I'm not offended at all. Uh, I'm to me, I'm dying up here was great because as a comic of almost 20 years or however long I've been doing it, it hit home. A lot of episodes were like dealing with why, certain people how they felt when someone else got the tonight show yeah and i mean i i see that every night why did earl get on roast battle i'm i'm a better roaster than he is yeah and they probably are uh why did he get on the cartoon i have a deeper voice than he does and i've done the same way uh why did this person get this show i, I was just on a show with them so it hit and the cheating and the backstabbing with girlfriends uh it was like wow i, I just went through that uh one time uh Chris Rock was on NPR. I think it was uh, Bullseye. But like, yeah, because it was Jesse Thorne was like, basically said like comedy is very hard on black comedians and mentioned some people who had died. And Chris Rock was just like, uh, it's hard on comedians. And then he just listed suicides for like two minutes maybe. And just sort of realizing that, that they're like, is a really disproportionate presence of suicide and untimely death in our bidness oh i would say i've lost uh at least 10 10 of my friends or comedy comrades uh you good on water do you want another water i'm good thank you um i mean it's a depressing business just like uh even you know on on you know they're doing it tonight and this week a roast battle i wasn't picked and uh, it's the most puzzling thing to me i've ever gone through in my life uh but i'm not saying i'm going to kill myself over it but like it's just like i don't understand this business like i beat jimmy carr i should get a lifetime pass on every season <laughs> like it's like beating jimmy carr at roast battle is like winning the masters in golf you get to play in it forever uh, but they picked people that I beat 
Yeah. They picked, uh, you know, a pro wrestler who I'm friends with. I love him, but he's never done it before. Uh, uh, you know, and it's just like, what, what, what am I doing? Like, when does, uh, you know, and there's other things that, you know, business related that it's like, you know, the only thing for me not killing myself is I have a big dick and a couple bucks. I mean, if I had a small dick and no money, I would have been dead five years ago. (laughs) And I'm not doing bits. Like, I'm not doing shtick. Um, That's beautiful. I mean, there are times when having to sort of like accept like, all right, Comedy Central has no real interest in having me on their network, you know? And I just have to be like, okay, that's that. I'll move along. And the struggle can be fun, you know? Like... Sometimes it can be hard to keep the fight in me, but um, I I just try to keep in love with it, keep being in love with it, and remember because of the like. Sometimes I think that the reason we have trouble with depression and suicide is because we get so much fun. Like so much of what we do is so fun. So much of what we do is just like fucking around and playing. Um, and then you have a bad night, you have an off roast battle, and you just feel like killing yourself. I mean, you know, it never got that bad, but it was just frustrating. Uh, no, I'm talking about me having a bad roast oh, battle. Yeah, but you've never had a bad roast. No, yes, battle. I did. They like they would never have me on the real show, but they had me on Road to Roast Battle, and I had like other shit going on because I got a career and a life, and I just didn't have the strongest of jokes, and I lost. Uh, and I was like so mad at myself because I was like, guy, if you had done well here, then they would have had you on the real show and then Comedy Central would have loved you. And it's like, no, at the end of the day, Comedy Central isn't like Comedy Central doesn't want me. Um, me either. Yeah. And it's it is nice now that there are gay male comics who they are paying attention to and are enthusiastic about. Uh, and it's like by the point in time they did that i was old which is you know a little bit sad but also that means that the world is progressing and changing and i'm seven years older than you so imagine how i feel jack yeah what i'm saying is you should commit suicide but can you tape it so i get some hits leave your dick leave your dick to the west hollywood city council let them find a needy like an aging twink, a twink who's around like 28 years old and isn't going to be able to continue like making a a living off of his face and butt uh, and who needs that dick to survive. I mean, I'll do what I can. I'm going to give it a go a little bit more, see what I can do. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's the struggle is real. I mean, I would never have guessed that you were depressed. Oh, that's interesting. And people probably don't think well, Earl's not what he's paid regular at the store. He's on a couple TV shows. What yeah. did he have wrong in his life? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also important to remember that sometimes our like we are blowing up these shortcomings more than they need to be. Like our lives are fine. Like oh my, yeah, my life is fine. I need to stop being like so negative. I don't think you're negative. See, you know, someone called me bitter the other day, and I. This is the one thing I don't like about comedy in L.A. And I'm maybe it's the same in New York or everywhere. If you're honest, you're labeled as bitter. Yeah, sometimes people can be like that, and like, I don't really care. Like, 
like castigating someone for being bitter is like, oh, you're mad I have an opinion. I, I also, like, I also, I don't have a problem with people being bitter, but I do have people being sort of, I have a problem with people being sort of like, um, reactively condescending or just like not liking other people's joy. Right. Like, you know, if you make your, there are a lot of those comics from like the late nineties, early two thousands who made a business out of shitting on other people's joy. It's like, fuck you. I don't like your, your negativity is sad. Like you love hockey and hair bands. Great. Like you have something to be in love with in this world that makes the world a better place. I mean, every now and then I have to take a night off of this crazy business and like, Two weeks ago, I went to go see Rat in Costa Mesa. It was great not to be around one comic, not to be around any roast battle people. Uh, and it was just for two hours. It was just, I like this music. I went to a Filipino woman's uh, 80th birthday in, um, in Costa Mesa. And I have to say, it was delightful. It's a long drive, I'll be honest with you. I mean, but it's like everything felt shiny and new they're like you know it was a saturday so the 405 wasn't trouble i mean 405 can be trouble um but the food was delicious well that's why i play hockey i said i have to be at least for a few hours a week around non-comics like every guy in my hockey league there's a few girls uh, they work at walmart they're students they work at sam's club they're uh w one guy's a car dealer back in the day there was always talk of that celebrity hockey league where it was like all Burr. at oh i'm thinking of like alan thick and uh, oh right uh, yes uh, keanu reeves yes uh luke robitaille who was actually in the nhl but you know they, he he was uh like a celebrity obsessed he liked being with them they probably mm -hmm. like being with an nhl player yeah. but to me like bitter probably a good way to end it like you know like when you see a comic making lots of money like well amy schumer sucks well why does she suck oh fucker no one deserves 37 million dollars but why does she suck though just because she makes money yeah you're just that's bitter but like if you say well she sucks because uh i don't like how she does her jokes or uh, i don't like her tv show we do have to admit there are some people who are very successful who are terrible. Um, and that is, but it's also like there for people who wouldn't like me, you know, it's like they have their own separate, different audience. Um, and that's fine. Like, I, yeah. I mean, I think the closest I get to bitterness is just sort of, um, you know, honestly, like, when freshly scrubbed 27 year old straight white boys show up and like, you know, the, after two and a half years of stand up, the industry is like, we love him. Uh, and doors open up. But the thing is, is also, Oh God. Uh, have you ever listened to Jackie Cation and Lori uh, Kilmartin's podcast? I don't, not because I don't like them, but I don't like to uh, listen to other podcasts so I steal anything. Uh, it's so good, but there was one moment where they were like, some people do show up to LA and just immediately pop without having the chops behind them. And Jackie was like, and save your money. Because her point was essentially like, if you don't, if you don't have it, that may last for five or six years, but like, the industry will move along and no longer need you. But people who, I mean, I've always gotten the feeling from Los Angeles that like this town is always going to have a use for me may not be what I want to do, but like this town's always going to have something I can do. 
Oh, I see it a lot with roast battle comics where it's, um, you know, they get a little bit of uh, fame or whatever. They're 15 minutes because they're good at writing mean jokes about someone being fat or a whore. In my case, Earl's so old, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But then they don't have 10 minutes to stand up. So then they get asked to open for whoever or headline in some cases because it's a it's a big tv show uh and then you know it, it's their 15 minutes go down to about six because it's like oh boy you get one crack at these clubs yeah uh, usually uh so uh i mean i find that the talented people survive in the end yeah but you know it's just a frustrating process to go through the bullshit and it's a fun process. I love it. I'm, I'll do it till I die. I don't want to be Tim Thomerson and retired in La Jolla. And that's not a knock on Tim Thomerson. But what about being a farmer in Idaho? I mean, either he had bad agents, bad managers. You know, I, I would think that you could at least parlay Miami Vice into maybe the wacky neighbor on uh, yeah. a Tim Allen show. And then you get... I mean, like I parlayed roast battle into I'm dying up here and then uh, the jellies Mm -hmm. like, you know, and even on the cartoon, you know, the the producer is like, you got a great voice. Let me set you up with this. Yeah. Like I'm always what's next. Yeah. Uh, You got to leverage that heat. Well, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of heat around me, but like, you know, it's mid mid temperature, but like maybe he didn't think ahead like i can imagine if you're on miami vice especially like seasons one through three like this is the biggest show in the world yeah i don't have to worry about what's going to be happening in the early 90s also how much cocaine did he do he didn't do any uh by the way if you listen to the very last episode uh philip michael thomas uh you can hear him fall off the face of the earth (laughs) now now i'm doing bits Uh, that's a skakel oldie from uh, year two in comedy did you know that he's the person who um coined egot oh i forgot what yeah i forget why philip michael thomas like in an early interview i may be wrong about this but i believe i just read yeah that he was like i want to get the whole deal i want to get the egot and then he explained it and they were like yeah good luck but like that that's another dude i forget my friend philip michael thomas good looking uh black dude uh, i guess look caribbean uh pretty good actor i mean i'm not saying he was de niro and like you know raging bull but he, he could act i don't think he's ever done anything other than the psychic network uh commercial yeah. like that's crazy to me it's very intimidating when you if you can't get work playing sunny or uh, ricardo tubbs what's uh al sims from i'm dying up here's future i mean it's it's a hard time but it always makes me so impressed by those people who are just like survivors a leah remini if you will right yeah i look at dom herrera like that dude's a legend to me just he's a survivor even dice like people shit on dice and you know it's like hey man this guy's been a huge comic for 30 fucking years not doing stand-up he's been big I mean, I love the survivors. Yeah. So, uh, you know, don't give up, guys. Unless you're on a show with me. (laughs) So we can go on a little earlier. Guy, I really, before you came over, I'm like, fuck, you know, he's kind of intimidating to me. I don't know. This is going to go about a half hour. No, but you know when you don't like, uh, 
know someone other than, hey, dude, what's up? Uh, you know, it's like, what are we going to talk about? Uh, this has almost been a two-hour podcast. I really had a lovely time. Well, um, thank you for having me to your home. And Earl, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I have a book coming out called My Life as a Goddess. And where can people get this book? And I want you to, you know, people think there's just, we just live in the Jeff Bezos world of Amazon. Uh -huh. There are other places. Uh, they could go to Barnes and Noble. They could go to Powell's book books in Portland. Um, they could go to the strand in New York. Uh, they could start a podcast, have it become moderately successful. Don't uh, do that. Uh, get some, get some really good guests, take it up to like one of the like top podcasts in America and then have me on as a guest. And then I would bring them a copy and I would also sign it and say why I think that they are a great person. Well, you know, saying you have a podcast in 2018 is, uh, it's like saying you uh, got a girl pregnant and you're an NBA player. Uh, <laughs> it's really, uh, you know, the bad thing about podcasts is, or the good thing is they're not that hard to do. You need a H4N recorder and two mics. Bad thing is that means everyone can do it. So, but it's like what we were just talking about. The good ones survive. Uh, my joke has always been, my problem isn't that all of my friends have a podcast. My problem is that all of my friends have two podcasts. <laughs> no. I don't know how people have two podcasts. It's like someone said, Earl, you should do a hockey podcast. First of all, that would get about seven fucking downloads. No one wants to talk hockey in the middle of July. There are 30 million people in Canada. Right. So you got to know the market. Uh, but guys, one of the best. Where can people find you on like Twitter and Instagram? I'm at Guy Branham across all social media. And do you have a website? Or? Yes, I do. It's GuyBranham.com. And uh, just really support Guy. Like he's just a good dude. And believe me, not everyone can say that in this business. And just to show you, I'm a better person. Roast Battle <laughs> is well. Tonight's show is probably already taped. Thursday and Saturday at the Honda Theater in uh, it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It comes on right after the Bruce Willis roast that I wasn't selected to be or write on July 29th, my mom's birthday. I'm a better person. I'm being mature and promoting two things I should have been on but wasn't. I'm not bitter. If I can't get a writing gig on the Bruce Willis roast, I ain't getting on anything else. But I'm not bitter about it. I'm just being honest. You L.A. comics, you charlatans. I know which one of you left a bad review on my podcast on iTunes. How dare you? You, you shady bastards. <laughs>